All right, we have a quick business update, just kind of updating you on a couple of housekeeping issues that are going on around the church. One, we announced a few weeks ago that we're going to be starting on a building program pretty soon. We have the plans, we have the permits, we have a builder. Uh, he was, the builder was actually a little sick this week, so that delayed us a little bit, but we still expect in the next few weeks, you will show up on a Sunday and not be able to walk in the front door. Uh, so when you show up on a Sunday, we'll have signs. Uh, we'll direct you around the back, and there's a breezeway back here. We'll just start entering through the back side of the building for a few months while we're doing that building. The purpose of the building is to expand out front so that we'll actually have a foyer. You can't really call that tiny space a foyer, you know. Um, so we'll have a foyer. We'll have bathrooms. We'll have some multipurpose space for other Bible studies and other meetings, and we'll have a couple of more nursery rooms. And so, um, number one, ladies will have new bathrooms. So I just want to say, be excited about that. Uh, I keep joking that I just never realized how bad it was and kind of late in the game figured out, oh, we have a terrible, terrible women's bathroom situation and I'm sorry, okay? Uh, So we're fixing that. We'll have more space for people to gather and build community. Our prayer is that as we embark on this, that it wouldn't be a distraction from the mission that Jesus has called us to. So we will continue to be about trying to grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus, love his grace more, and then reach out and share that grace more in this community. So will you pray with me? that that becomes a tool for us to serve Jesus, not a distraction. In the American church, you know, there's all these horror stories of super wealthy churches with all these buildings and all these programs that distract them from mission. And our prayer would be that any uh, tool that we have would be used in service of our king. So pray for that. Also want to give you a giving update. Uh, If you're one of those people that follows the bulletin, in the bulletin we have a kind of where we stand month to month on the giving in the back, kind of what we've budgeted uh, and what people have given. And I want to say that we had a new bookkeeper, and then we also changed, uh, we told you our our software called The City, we're leaving that and moving into a new software. So what happened was we weren't getting all the reports from the new software. So now we've got all that in, and as we compile the averages, we're actually closer to making budgets. So some of you that watch that every month are like, man, we're we're pretty low. Um, And one commitment we've made is we're not going to spend more money than comes in. So just know that we cut expenses as our giving is, is lower than we expect. Uh, but know also that with those averages, our, our giving is actually a lot better than we thought it was. So I'll give you like a chart in the next couple of weeks with a full report on those numbers, but just kind of wanted to give that verbal update that it's looking a lot better than it has been. Um, and we'll give the, the totals here in a couple of weeks. Um, so thank you for your giving. You're more generous than we realized you were. Um, but also keep giving. Some of you may be a part of this church and you haven't begun giving. We just encourage you that that's a New Testament value to give towards the ministry that you're associating with. So would love for you to partner with us in that way. Um, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. It can be found on page 978 in the black Bibles that you'll see under the chairs in front of you. So you can follow along in one of those Bibles as well. So it's Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, page 978 in the Black Bibles, we're continuing our partnership series. So what we're going to be doing over the next 12 to 13 weeks is we're going to be looking at New Testament examples of what it looks like to partner with the local church. Uh, We're looking at a lot of passages that talk about the one another's. This is one of those kinds of passages that talk about how we should get along with one another's because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We introduced it last week in Philippians, said last week in Philippians that Partnership is a key word that is a translation of this word that's sometimes translated as fellowship, right? This koinonia word, and it means something more like a business partnership than a passive association. Another word in the Bible, the Greek word is melos, and that word is membership. That word will show up in our text today, the word membership, belonging 
to one another. And then there's another kind of cluster of words that I would call family words. There's all kinds of different words, sometimes calling each other brother and sister, uh, referring to God as our father, um, this concept that we are now the, a new family in Christ. So those are three kind of clusters of ways that the New Testament talks about what it means for us to do life together as a local church. And we're going to just be looking over that next several weeks. Today, we'll see the family language and the membership language in our text in Ephesians 4.25-5.2. We're going to call it Partnership is Love. So we are actually going to express our love as family with one another here uh, in our partnership in a local church. We are to live as a type of spiritual family. As we read through the text today, it's going to end with this example of how Jesus has loved us, how the Father has loved us. We should love one another. Um, We are to be imitators of God, it'll say, in the last verse of our section today. And that reminded me of how we see that in our own families. I don't know if you've ever seen this, if you have a child. Have you ever noticed that one of your children sometimes will pick up your habits? Have you ever seen that? Uh, When my son was two, he had kind of a, a strange way of swaggering when he walked, kind of like, you know, long arms and big steps. And I thought, that's really strange that he walks that way. You know, I wonder if something's wrong. Um, And just one day I was walking across uh, the yard at our house and I saw my shadow. And I was like, oh, I walk like that, you know? And there's like, my arms are swinging and my legs are going. I've tried to rein it in a little bit since then, that moment of awareness, right? But you just kind of notice sometimes your children imitate you. I'm an avid whistler. You might have been either blessed or annoyed by my whistling, but I love to whistle. My father was a great whistler, right? There's an imitation happening there. It's just natural. I grew up hearing whistling. I'm going to whistle. You see that in different forms in your families. You might even see that in your friends, right? You might remember when you're in high school or maybe you do this at work where you start to use the same weird words that your friends use, right? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed how teenagers will start to use their own language? My father-in-law has moved in with us recently, and he's like, I don't understand half of what those kids say, right? We have teenagers, college kids, high school kids. He's like, they're using all these weird words for things, right? But that's a normal association you, you, you get with people and you begin imitating those people. You begin beca- behaving as family. And that's what we're going to see in the text here. So we're going to read a long list of behaviors, things we should be doing. And then at the end, it's going to say, you're doing that because you're imitating God. Okay? So let's read 425 through 5.2. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Now we'll just read these two verses from Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This verse is a summary of what we sometimes refer to as a gospel-centered motivation. Because Jesus has loved us, we should love. 
That's a different motivation than saying, hey, you better start loving each other or God is not going to love you, right? That's flipping those things around and saying, your love, your behavior, your honesty, your lack of anger, all those things will earn God's love. Here, we're told, no, because God has given you this good news of love in Christ, because of that, go love each other. Because of that, go obey, go do what's right because of the grace that's been shown you already in Jesus. And we need to get that straight. Ephesians, it's actually a great pattern of that in the scriptures. It's one of the clearest examples of how the blessings we have in Christ live to a new life, a new kind of obedience, a new kind of love. So just as I encouraged you last week in Philippians to read the whole book this week, read all of Ephesians. It's a short book. It's just six small chapters. It's a few pages. And in Ephesians, you see three chapters in the beginning saying, Jesus has blessed you. God has blessed you. He's shown grace to you that you never deserved. And then there's this turn, first verse of chapter four, that says, so now live that out. Because he's blessed you, start living it out. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look more in depth in the text here. God, thanks for your word. Uh, We receive it as a gift from you. We pray that it would shape us and change us. We ask for your Holy Spirit to meet us here and help us. Um, God, we confess that we are weak and we need your strength. And so we ask for you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look through the text, I kind of tried to organize this in different ways of loving, right? The the catch-all is that God's love for us would be reflected in how we love each other. And he ended with those family terms. He's going to begin with the membership, the kind of your members of one another terminology. So he's using these different concepts of what partnership looks like in the local church. And so the first thing we see is that love displays membership. So as I said, there's this kind of big picture motivation that we love because Christ first loved us, right? That's the major because. That is the most important because of Scripture. It's repeated throughout Scripture. Here, there's this secondary of motivation of also remember kind of primarily you're loved by God, you're made his child, you're in a family now, so remember you're in a family now. So he's now giving the secondary motivation of love each other because you're related. You're now associated with each other. You, you belong to each other. You can't just go be mean and lie and be angry with each other. You have to be kind because you belong to one another. You're members one of another. So look at 425 again. 425 says it this way. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That quote, uh, well, that verse is a quote or an allusion to Zechariah 8, it's 8.13, I need to check my notes for that, Zechariah 8.16, if you read Zechariah, it's a prophecy in the Old Testament that gives visions of what it's going to look like when God finally fixes his people Israel. And we know that that ultimate fix of the people of God comes through Jesus, right? So there are these prophecies in Zechariah of what it's going to look like when Zion is the way it's supposed to be. We would think of that as kind of that ultimate future when God makes all things right. Um, As Christians, we tend to disagree sometimes on the details of how the end times are going to happen and what order, but we have all these prophetic visions of God's going to make everything right. There's this future perfection, this new Jerusalem coming down to earth, the new heavens, new earth, the everything being beautiful and right and good. Zechariah's talking about that in Zechariah 8. And he says, in that new world, people are going to be honest with each other, right? In that new world, we're all going to belong to each other. We're all going to be members one of another, and we're going to speak honestly. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, 
For, why? For we are members one of another. So do you recognize that you've been placed in a family in Christ? That you now have a new spiritual family and we belong to each other. Even if we didn't grow up together, even if we have different preferences, even if we have different cultural backgrounds or different racial backgrounds, we are now one in Christ. We are members one of another. I grabbed as an illustration uh, two people rock climbing together. Have you ever rock climbed? Anybody here done rock climbing? Some of you have done that. When you go rock climbing, uh, if you're doing it the right way, I guess, you've got a rope attached to a friend, right? It's more complicated than that. But you have a rope, and on the other end of the rope is a friend. And y'all are members one of another, right? You're on the same team. You're helping each other out. This picture I picked on purpose because the guy looks like he's falling. The guy's slipping. He's losing his grip. And when you lose your grip, you want that rope to be there. You want that friend on the other end of the rope. You want someone to be holding on to you. As modern Christians, we forget that we need each other. We tend to think that we're self-sufficient. It's one of the great strengths of our culture. We want to give thanks to God for the strengths of our culture and say, that's great that we've learned responsibility and independence. Those are good virtues. But we can take those too far and think, so I don't need anybody. And the Bible says, no, you're a sinner, and you need the forgiveness of Jesus, and you need the help of your brothers and sisters. You need to remember that you're members of one Another, And because you're members of one another, you will speak truth to one another. So I have mentioned this in the past. One of the motivations you might have for lying is because you forget that Jesus has secured you and forgiven you and made you his child. And so you might think that you need to be untruthful. You might think that you need to not put away falsehood because you need to get something that you don't have. But if you are settled in Christ if you know that he's adopted you and made you his child and that everything is okay, then you can speak truth to one another. Then you can speak really scary things about yourself, right? Then I can admit my struggles or my problems or my failures with you because I know Christ has forgiven me so I can be real with you. You can also speak hard things to a brother or sister who maybe is not ready to admit those things or is not ready to see those things and you're like, hey, I don't know if you're seeing this but you're, you're not doing what's right in this area, or I'm afraid you're not doing what's right in this area. Of course, we would be gracious and patient with each other, but we can speak truth to one another because we belong to one another, right? When you see that you are members one of another, you're on the same team, that enables you to relate in a different way. There's a second instance of this that Paul's going to unfold in verse 26. Look at verse 26 and 27. It says this also looks like dealing with our angry, our anger, says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So when we uh, brew in our anger, we're giving a place for the devil. We're giving a, an area, a foothold is literally what that would be in the Greek. Um, we're giving a foothold to the devil. We're like giving him an opportunity to kind of dig in and tempt us more when we boil in our anger. Um, this is kind of difficult to translate. It can be translated as a command, as if Paul is telling us to be angry. Um, And so we have to be careful with this. I think there is something true often, I'm being very careful, there's often something true about human anger, right? Because you're made in the image of God and because I'm made in the image of God, when we see injustice, we often react in some form of anger. And so there's something right about that. We want to acknowledge that. So I think that's part of what he's getting at here. He's saying when that anger comes, it might be because at some level, a just anger, right? An anger at injustice. And when that comes, don't sin in your anger. 
Now, we need to be careful because this is like the only place in Scripture where anger is even halfway excused, right? So we just want to be very careful because in every other place, we're going to see it later in our section today, we're encouraged to put away anger. Um, I think a helpful parallel would be to look at Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 talks about anxiety. It's not the same thing as anger, but it's kind of a parallel emotion that we know at some level is a sin if we let it run wild. But when it crops up in our hearts, we're like, what do I do with this? Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says, don't be anxious about anything. The Greek construction is actually don't keep being anxious about anything. So I think the idea is, especially when you look at the pattern of the Psalms as well, the idea is when, when any emotion comes up in our heart, it just is what it is, right? We don't need to beat ourselves up for that presenting emotion. We need to say, God, there might be something true about this and there might be something out of whack about this because I'm a sinner. And so we just take that emotion, let it be what it is, and then present that back to God. Say, God, what do I do with this emotion? Right? I'm feeling anxiety. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, present your request to God. Pray. If you feel anxiety cropping up, pray. That's what you do with anxiety. The pattern of the Psalms again and again is we have these emotions overflowing and we give them to the Lord. That's what the Psalms are. That's what the psalmists are doing repeatedly. So this pattern of don't beat yourself up for having emotions. The question is, what are you going to do with your emotions, right? So let's take all of that and then look back at this anger thing again. And it says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. So he's saying, okay, when anger comes up, don't sin. And then he says it in another way, and uh, do not let the sun go down on your anger. You take that combined with all the other warnings about anger, like in James, where he says um, the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God, right? We'd say, you know what? I probably shouldn't boil in this anger. I shouldn't let the sun go down on my anger. I shouldn't like, keep cooking that anger. I should give it back to the Lord. Say, God, do you want me to do something about it? You see something out in the community. You see an injustice. Say, God, is, it, is that in my jurisdiction? Is it my job to do anything about it? Or is that your job? Is it my job to do anything about it? Or do I need to alert someone else? And it's their job to do something about it. But you take that anger you might have from some injustice and you say, God, what should I do with this? Will you take it? Will you direct me? Also, there's this practical step of not letting the sun go down on your anger. How many of you have heard that like in a marriage context? You have a marriage relationship. You just deal with it, Right. I want to say there is a hyper-literalism where you can take that to an extreme. Uh, I tortured my poor wife early in our marriage sometimes. Whereas like if you're having a fight and I'm like, no, I'm going to force you to stay up until 3 a.m. to settle this fight. We're not going to go to sleep. I just want to say that's taking it a little too far, okay? I've kind of learned that you can say, okay, because Jesus loves us. We love each other. We can just say we're going to go to sleep and, and take some rest and then we'll fight more tomorrow, right? So <laughs> the idea is don't just seethe in your anger, right? Don't just boil in your anger and keep working on that anger and keep building that anger, but you give that over to the Lord. Don't give a place to the devil where you think that your righteous anger can create his righteousness. James says it this way, James 1, 19 through 20, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God, okay? We'll talk more because he's going to come back to anger at the end of this section, so we'll get there more Know also that this is a quote of Psalm 4, where the uh, psalmist is talking about how people have been mistreating him. In the Hebrew, the word for anger there is, is literally like the shaking, you know what I mean? Like when that emotion comes over you and you're kind of, there's a tremor 
that's taking place. Some of the translations of Psalm 4 actually say tremble. So in your trembling, don't sin. But you give that back to the Lord. You give that to the Lord. You pray, yes, for help from other people, and you give those emotions to the Lord. That's a pattern we see again and again in the scriptures. The next thing I want us to look at is that love meets needs. Love meets needs. He's going to make it very practical in this little middle part here, um, verses 28 through 29. Look at verse 28. He says in verse 28, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So, meeting a need. You work so you can meet other people's needs. Verse 29 is a parallel that we don't always see in the English. Verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Uh, And that word fits the occasion. is just the repetition of the same Greek word for needs. And so he's saying you work with your hands to meet needs and you speak with your mouth in such a way that you build people up and you meet needs. Don't let corrupting or rotten speech come out of your mouths, but let the kind of speech that would come out of your mouths that would give grace to people, that would help them be built up in their faith. What kind of speech can you use to direct people back to God's standards and his kindness and forgiveness for you. What are those words? We often get distracted and we think of uh, this language meaning let no naughty words come out of our mouths. Do you know what I mean? Like if you grow up as a child, uh, you have certain words you're not allowed to say. Like we teach our kids not to say stupid. And then they go to a friend's house and they say stupid in that family. And then your kids are all confused, right? Because they said the S word. And you're like, okay, well, it's not, okay, it's not that bad. And you have to work that all out. Um, it's fine to teach your kids a a do not say list, right? That's just fine to build in your culture, your family culture. These are the words we're not going to say because they're destructive. But this is painting a bigger picture, right? This verse is more than that. It's not just a magic list of bad words. It's how are you using your words? Are you proactively using your words to build other people up? How are you using your language? It's actually a much a much bigger bar here, right? It's a much bigger goal. And so what I would say is, is you might speak perfect language, right? You might never use naughty words. You might never say anything vulgar. You might use perfect grammar, but are you using it to build people up? That's the bar. What's their need? What is their hurt? Where's their area of brokenness? And are you meeting those needs with your language? Reminds us of how Peter talks about there's basically two kinds of gifts. There's serving gifts and there are speaking gifts. We should speak as if we're speaking God's words. Wherever you go, think, what are God's words for this person? And as you serve, you serve as if you're using God's strength. Okay, what's the need of this person? I want to use God's strength to help this person. I want to go back to the working section, though, as well. Look back again. It says, to work with your hands, let the thief no longer steal, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he might have something to share with anyone in need. Um, I grabbed an example of this because repeatedly we're told that God is like a potter. So I grabbed a picture of someone at a potter's wheel uh, to remind us that we serve a God who is not afraid to get his hands dirty. That is built into our faith and our religion and we need to recognize that that's an unusual thing in the history of religion. Many religions are trying to say that God is so holy that he can't be bothered with menial labor. But we have a God who like played in the dirt to make us, right? 
I joked that he made Adam out of dirt, right? That women were made out of a rib, so women are a little cleaner than men. But he makes us out of the dirt, right? That's what clay is. Clay is just mud. So here you see this picture of hands getting grimy as it's forming something beautiful. That's the kind of God that we serve. In ancient religions, the gods were too busy to work, and that was a way that they justified enslaving people, right? They said, that's why the upper class enslaves the lower class, because important people can't be bothered with getting dirty. Christians don't think like that. Christians say there's dignity in anything that's necessary, and we will work hard with our hands. We will get our hands dirty to serve others, to build culture, to serve the needs of other broken people. That's the kinds of people that we will be. So I'd ask you to think about in your own life, are there things that God may be calling you to and you think I'm too good for that? I have too much education for that. Or maybe I'm too important for that. Or maybe I was raised to not do that kind of thing. I'm above that. The gospel says that the God of the universe left the perfection of heaven to stoop and to serve us, to become a slave on our behalf, to die for us, to be broken for us, to give his life for us. And that should be reflected in the way we live. We will then not be too good to get our hands dirty. We will stoop to serve. We will follow the example of our God who loves us and meets the needs of other people. Um, The last thing I want us to look at is that love is kindness. Uh, Love is reflected in our kindness with each other, how we interact with each other, how we show grace to one another. If you look at verse 30 here, chapter 4, verse 30, says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, Just to be clear here, uh, this doesn't mean we can lose the Holy Spirit if we're mean, right? It doesn't mean that we lose him because it says we're sealed. He sealed us. It's finished. It's permanent. If you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ. It's settled. But it's saying there is a way in which we can interact that makes the Holy Spirit sad, right? Um, and, and we need to wrestle with that. That's, we don't want to make the Holy Spirit sad. And how do we do that? Well, it says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So we want to be kind, right? We want to put away all this anger and this wrath and this malice. And I would say if you are a high justice person, if you're someone that struggles with anger and struggles with knowing when you have righteous anger and unrighteous anger, he he gives a really good formula for us here when we're dealing with those emotions and we're not sure how to direct them. He takes us back to the gospel. It says in verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So what he does is he reminds us that we are to forgive one another because God forgave us, right? It's very easy when you're frustrated with someone. It's easy for me when I'm frustrated with someone to just think, well, they just need to get their stuff together, right? And there's this kind of unspoken assumption behind that that I never say, but it kind of rests behind that thought that I've got my stuff together. The gospel says that none of us have our stuff together, says we should forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us. And so when you feel that anger and wrath and slander coming up in your heart, the formula is you take that back to the cross and you recognize that God in Christ forgave you, right? You, you have offended a holy God. All of us have. Remember where we were in Romans a few months ago. In Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3, Paul does this buildup where he 
shows that uh, those who are living wild and rebellious pagan lives are under judgment. They've rebelled against God and they deserve his wrath. And then he turns his guns on us religious people and he says, and, and you religious people too, you also deserve God's wrath because you also have failed to live up to his standards of love and justice. All of us have. Religious people just hide it a little better. All of us need to repent. All of us need to remember that we've been forgiven. And when we remember we've been forgiven, that gives us a little extra tender heartedness towards others. This word tender hearted is one of my favorite Greek words. It's like nidzomion. So whenever we were preaching through the gospels, I've preached through Matthew and Mark over the years, we're often told that Jesus has this tender heartedness. It's often translated as compassion. Sometimes in the King James, it's literally that his bowels were moved. And the Greek word is his guts, right? Have you ever seen an injustice or have you ever seen someone who's broken and it hurts you in your guts? Do you know what I'm talking about? That's what that word means. And this is saying Christians should feel that. Now, based on your temperament, right, some of us are better at feeling things than others. And that's, that's fine. But if you don't feel it at all, you should seek that from the Lord. You should say, Holy Spirit, will you help me to feel other people's pain and see these injustices and help me to hurt in my guts for what's broken and wrong in other people's lives? Help me to be tender-hearted. Help me to have compassion for people. Like I said, some of you are more natural at it than others, but we all need the Holy Spirit to help us to do that properly. So that's what we're called to here. This tender-heartedness, this hurting for other people, this being kind for other people. One of the expressions as we love each other well, as we live out what it means to be family, what it means to be members of one another, what it means to partner with each other actively in local church,